Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. So Jesus had been gaining quite a reputation. There were curious crowds and headlines in all the papers. In just this short, uh, a few chapters before Mark 8, Jesus had healed a deaf man. Jesus had fed well over 4,000 with just seven loaves and a few small fish. Then Jesus healed a blind man who'd been lying beside the pool for decades. There was lots of talk, lots of energy, lots of expectation. But since we know the story, we can see what's coming in the same way that Jesus apparently saw what was coming. The crowds would dissipate. The friends would turn away. Jesus apparently had a growing sense that while a lot of people liked the caricature of who they thought he was, they didn't really want him. Lots of people liked the things that he did, but they didn't really want him. They had not reckoned with who Jesus truly was, what Jesus was actually doing in the world. It seems uh, similar in some ways to John chapter 2, where the crowds encounter Jesus' miracles, and the scripture says that they begin to believe in Jesus. But there's those haunting words that Jesus did not entrust himself to them, because Jesus knew what was truly in their hearts and knew that he could not entrust himself to them. You've been in conversations or a relationship, I'm certain, where perhaps all the right words are there. But you know in your heart that you're not truly safe with that person. I have a friend, uh, a black pastor in town, and he just told me this last week. He said, you know, I'm in a lot of spaces with a lot of white pastors who seem to say all the right language but it's really easy to sniff out what's really happening. And I often know that my presence and who I truly am is not fully safe there. Jesus turns to his dearest friends, the ones that we'd all hope would see the truth, the ones who would truly be with Jesus. And Jesus asks them, who do people say that I am? I think what Jesus was really after here was for them to freely, boldly declare their own loyalty and belief without Jesus having to really ask for it. I wonder if Jesus was really desiring for his friends to see him, to unequivocally say that they were with him without him having to sort of prod. You know, um, if I were to go home this afternoon and ask Miska, so... Um, you hear the people saying anything about the kind of dad I am? I'm probably not really wanting to know if she's heard the talk in the town about my fathering skills. What I really want to hear from her is, 
So what do you think <laughs> about who I am? But the disciples, as is so often the case, they would risk very little. They would stay somewhat neutral. They would only deal with the facts, the bare minimum, what was before them. So let me give you the options, Jesus. Some say John the Baptist. Uh, others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. Let me give you all the possibilities. Sounds like a pastor, doesn't it? But let's just keep everything on the table. And Jesus asked what apparently was his deeper question. What about you? Who do you say I am? This is the question that each one of us has to answer. This is the question we confront if we will ever allow ourselves to be embraced by Jesus. It's the question we confront in all the ranging seasons of our life, in each moment of testing, each time that our affections are seduced toward other loves, each time our loyalty to Jesus wavers, each time our heart grows lethargic, each time we sit in the cold corner consumed by fear, or our heart is clouded by those suffocating, small, triveling stories that seem to gobble up our energy and our possibilities. It's the question we have to face each time the allure of money or ease or reputation casts its spell over us. Each time we are enamored with some philosophy or idea that feels so powerful, but subtly is incongruous with the call to follow Jesus. Who do you say that I am? And bold, or we could call him rash, depending on how you see Peter, Peter flashes his response. You are the Christ. Now, this is a big claim. The Christ for Peter and the disciples would have been the Messiah. The one God sends to redeem and heal the world. And again, Jesus warns them, uh, don't tell that to anyone. Why did Jesus not want Peter to tell anyone that he was the Christ? Isn't that kind of the point? Perhaps Jesus wanted Peter to be quiet because Peter knew, Jesus knew that Peter actually didn't quite get it. That Peter's idea of who Jesus was and what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ actually was a long way from the truth. So Jesus begins to teach them deeply. Jesus thinks, Peter, you say those words, but I don't think you know what those words actually mean. And so Jesus explains to the disciples that he would suffer, that he would be rejected by the religious authorities, that he would be killed, and then after three days he would rise from the dead. And Mark says that Jesus taught them plainly 
about this. He wasn't sugarcoating anything. He wasn't trying to let them down gently. He was saying, this is what it means for me to be the Christ. And in some of the most stunning words in this chapter, it says, Peter rebuked Jesus. I mean, Peter's brash. He is not lacking in confidence. Peter's the kind of guy that would stare down a bear for a piece of meat. Peter knows this one thing for sure. The conquering God is not a God who suffers. And if Jesus thinks that he is, then Jesus is mistaken. Christ is supposed to come slicing that flaming sword against the neck of the empire. No, Jesus, <laughs> uh, you're mistaken. Suffering and death is not the way this story goes. Let me explain it to you. It is a massive temptation to take Jesus' words and insist that they must mean what I know they mean. And it's not at all obvious to us sometimes when we're doing this. It feels and seems so righteous. Peter was instructing Jesus on what God is going to do in the world. This was the apostle Peter for crying out loud. This is the one that Jesus would say is the rock of the church. It's a real temptation as a preacher to turn Jesus' words the way I want to hear them. To turn Jesus' words the way I assume you probably want to hear them. The way that makes sense to our ears because it doesn't make sense otherwise. And then Peter and Jesus go toe-to-toe. -to -toe. As soon as Peter rebukes Jesus, the scripture says that Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter. I mean, you kind of kind of like this, you know, this back and forth. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. Don't you just, I mean, I kind of loved this when I was reading it. I'm not sure exactly why, but I just see sparks are flying. It's like these two people who do love each other are really getting at the real stuff. You do not have in your mind, Peter, the things of God. You just have human things in your head. I think that Jesus' response here was so strong because the temptation was so strong. I think the temptation to hear Peter's words and say, yeah, I like that better. <laughs> You're right, Peter. This suffering thing, uh, let's not do that. And Jesus tells Peter to get behind him. And from what we hear in the words immediately to follow, it seems what Jesus is saying is, Peter, you get behind and follow me. You've, you've got to follow. You can't leave here. So he calls the disciples back together and calls all the crowd back together. Jesus had something he absolutely wanted to make sure everyone heard, which is the opposite of what he had just said to Peter a bit before, don't tell anyone. Because now... The words were going to be in his mouth, and he was going to explain what it truly meant to be the one who was sent from God. So everyone is gathered, 
And this is the message that Jesus delivers. If any of you want to become my followers, and don't you love the posture of Jesus? If you want to. If it is your desire to be a follower of me, then anyone who wants to do that must deny themselves. They must take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life, they're going to lose it. But those who are courageous and trusting to lose their life, they'll find the strange mercy that they've saved it. For what does it profit you to gain everything and lose your soul? To lose the life that God gives? What does it profit you? Do you remember a few weeks ago me saying that I believe a number of us are dabbling with Jesus, but that Jesus is inviting us to be disciples? Maybe we dabble because we're taking things seriously. Maybe we dabble because we've actually heard Jesus and we've heard Jesus say what being a follower or a disciple means. It means that we deny ourselves. It means we give up. It means we stop pursuing the illusion that I am the center of my story. We surrender most everything that we're taught about how to live. We resist our most basic instincts for self-promotion and survival. In a world where pleasure and comfort and individual identity are the great gods of our day, this is an insane, ridiculous proposition that Jesus gives. Now, the strangeness of the story is that what we discover actually is in denying ourselves, we're not actually denying our truest selves. We're denying our false selves. <laughs> we're denying all that stuff that is the ego and the self-promotion and the way I make my life work and the things that I hold to and the things that I cling to, all the things that I've come to believe are myself. And it is a lie. And in clinging to those, we actually lose what is true. And we take up our cross. Now, the cross... When Jesus was talking to the crowd here, the cross had not become a piece of ornamental jewelry. It was not something that most everyone wore, whether you actually believed much of anything or not. The cross was a symbol of terror and torture. And interestingly, he didn't say, you're going to have to take up my cross. He said, you're going to have to take up your cross. You're going to have to to discover what it is in denying yourself that you must take up, that you are to carry in this world. To become the person that God has envisioned for us to be, to have our presence in the world that is the presence of Christ. Like Christ, we must follow in his way, and that will inevitably mean taking up a cross. There will be a place where your life has to die. 
There will be a place that seems like you must have this, have this relationship, have this place, have this reputation, have this sense of myself. I must have that to be who I truly am. And in the strange and kind mercy of Jesus, Jesus says, it's not true. It's not true. And I know it feels like it's literally going to kill you. But what you're going to have to do is die. If you want to be free, if you want to follow the way of life, if you want to follow Jesus, you are going to have to at some point deny all the false stuff that seems like it's you. And you are going to have to die. And it is at this point that some of us taking Jesus seriously say, I hear you and I'm not going to do that. And I want to say, through the lens of faith, and because I am taking Jesus at his word about what is true in the world, I think that is a foolish mistake to make. But I can look at it a very another way and say, it also is a legitimate option. <laughs> to take Jesus seriously and say, I hear what you're asking, and I'm hearing what you say the road is, and I do not want to go that way. I think that is a really honest response. And I think that we can live in a way that allows us to confront that and grapple with that and hear Jesus and come again and again back to Jesus because it is never a one-time decision. Bonhoeffer, as we've, many of us have heard, said, when Jesus invites us to follow him, he bids us to come and die. The faith that we profess is a faith that is formed by the blood of martyrs. It's not something that we talk about very often. It's so far from our experience and memory. But in our own history, we go back to a century where people were so compelled by the person of Jesus. They were so undone by his teachings that undid the empire and undid their own stories and undid religion. They were so undone and mesmerized and compelled and perplexed by his way in the world. They were so consumed by the proclamation of Jesus offering renewal and salvation that they would rather die than surrender their hope, their loyalty to Jesus. I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure that I hear the story in a way, given the way I've grown up, given the culture of ease I've lived in, that I hear the story in a way that I can comprehend what it means to be so compelled by Christ that I would literally rather die than surrender that Jesus. We deny ourselves, we take up our cross, and we follow. We go where Jesus goes. We try to do what Jesus says. We take the risk that losing our life with Jesus means saving it.
and that all the stuff we try to do to save our life actually means losing it. We take Jesus' words that the way Jesus tells us about what is true about the world is actually true and that we can trust that. Before I uh, started my uh, PhD program a long time ago, I was having a conversation with a uh, theologian, pastor, someone who's lived for a long time in the world of the academy, has also been a pastor, and I was just talking to him about what would it be like to be who I am and be in that world. And he looked at me and he said, when uh, before you enter that field of study, you will need to settle in your heart that you want to obey and love Jesus more than you want other people's acceptance. And I think that could be true about a thousand different vocations and areas of life. Whenever we put ourselves in a place where we say what, what I hope for and long for most is to love and follow Jesus, it will inevitably mean that it costs us something. We will have to not deny something that we think we have to have for life. We will have to take up some cross somewhere. And we will have to take out on steps of following Jesus. Would you pray with me? The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.